Hello, this is Tom Williams, and you are listening to Talk Theater in Chicago's Interview Podcast. Our guest this week is one of the top directors and one of the finest artistic directors in Chicago. He runs City Lit Theater up on Bryn Mawr. Hello, Terry McCabe. Hey, Tom. How are you? Great. Uh, tell us about this this terrific new show you have, uh, The Body Snatchers, uh, with uh, Brian Pastor uh, playing the lead. Um, it's a... Uh... It's an adaptation, it's a world premiere adaptation by Paul Edwards, uh, who also directed the show, of the classic 1950s science fiction novel, The Body Snatchers. It's the book that all those movies called Invasion of the Body Snatchers are based on. Um, uh, but we're doing the book. We're not, you know, trying to stage the movie. It's not one of those shows. Yeah, but, it's a terrific show. And one of the things I like, and we won't, of course, give it away, is... Uh, your ending is a little different than the movie because the novel does end differently. Yes, yeah, and, and the like I say, we're doing the book. We're not doing the movie. In fact, I've never seen any of the movies, um, although Paul, the adaptive director, is familiar with them. But we're doing the book, and the book does end somewhat differently. Yeah, I get I get a kick out of it because you have uh, you have kind of the humor uh, in it too. Uh, it, it's sort of a gentle. Uh, Nod to the to the film nor of of those fifty science fiction movies. Yeah, it's very much um, set in the fifties, which is when the novel is written and set. I, I gather that not all the movies are, which is fine. Um, but uh, but the book is, and so our show is. And um, you know, there's it's there's uh, so I don't know if it's a political subtext if that's the right term or not, um, but. There's that 1950s atmosphere of paranoia and the enemy hidden among us, and they look just like us, but we can't quite recognize them. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's in in a way that's what the show's about. That's in a way that's what the book's about. Um, I you know I don't buy all the the theory that he was that um, Jack Finney, the author, was actually writing about you know uh, either the communist threat or the anti-communist threat. Um, were assured by his children that he was not. Um, we had dealt with his kids in order to get the rights to the book. Um, you know, he was just writing a good science fiction story. It's a terrific science fiction story. Yeah, it is. Um, but nonetheless, that sort of um, that sort of paranoia was just kind of in the air in a lot of ways in the fifties. Uh, and you you know you can read it as the political thing. That, you know, you can read the book that way if you want to, and a lot of people do. Um, but, uh, you know, there's something actually more pervasive about it than just uh, a comment on, you know, the Red Menace. Yeah, and it comes off great on stage, which is difficult to do. The the uh, the video projections that, that bring, uh, like my young reviewer I had who loved the show, he wasn't that familiar. The Having those scenes from the 50s in the video sort of added to it without distracting from what was going on on the stage. Right. It's not like the action stops when we watch a video, which I think is always uninteresting in, in live theater. Um, but it's sort of woven into what's going on. Uh, my favorite part of that, um, if, I, if I may, sure. is when um, the psychiatrist, the role played by Jerry Bloom, is explaining about the Mattoon Maniac. Um, the uh, sort of mass delusion that there was a, a mass killer in Mattoon, Illinois. Uh, he's telling this story to, you know, uh, uh, sort of draw a parallel to the body snatching that seems to be going on. Um, the video shows 
actual newspaper headlines, a lot of them from the Chicago Tribune, about this incident in Mattoon, uh, which is exactly as described in the show, that the community was swept up um, with repeated sightings of this man who you know, would walk down the street and come into houses and attack women with this sort of spray gun. Um, and uh, uh, gradually uh, it turned out that it was just mass hysteria. There was no such person. This wasn't happening. All these you know, women and other people who thought they saw him were sincere. They believed that this was happening, but none of it was true. It's sort of like, you know, the witch hunts in Salem or something. Yeah, I agree with you. It was it was a terrific uh, effect and a nice piece of history because I did Google it after the, the show and you guys were right on. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and it seems you know when you uh, otherwise it could seem simply like uh, an invented incident for the purpose of the show, but the actual documentary uh, projections of the Tribune stories and the photographs and the other headlines. Sort of like, oh my God, this this is this is a true story. Um, you know, it's one of those shows. The Body Snatchers is one of those shows where, um, uh, more than most, where we try to create the illusion that, you know, this is ripped from the headlines and this is true. Uh, that you know that this could happen. This this body snatching could happen. Who knows? Which yeah. is you know yeah. one of the great things about good science fiction. Yeah. Is that um, it. It starts from the position that this could happen to you. You're next, kind of yeah. thing. Yeah, well, and it comes into a, the way it ends, which I, of course, won't give away. Uh, yeah, it's it, it leaves an interesting effect. Yeah, yeah, uh, it's like the Twilight Zone. You know, the yeah. part of the subject of the Twilight Zone is always, you know, there really is a place where if you just sort of turn the corner, you're in a different dimension. That well, could actually happen. Mm-hmm. You know, it's sort of the message of the Twilight Zone. Mm-hmm. Part of what makes it so entertaining. Yeah, and you guys have a history of of uh, of taking these these uh, novels and stories from from other media and really making them come alive on stage. Well, thanks. I mean, that's that's our mission. We were the first theater in the country to devote itself to stage adaptations of literary material. Um, and now, and this is thirty years ago. Uh, and these days, of course, most theaters uh, will at least do that from time to time. If, I mean, there, and there's a number of theaters. You know who also devote themselves to it as a as their principal mission, uh, but we were the first, um, and uh, uh, you know it continues to be an important part of what we do. It's not the only thing we do, uh, but it remains an important part of it. Well, let me congratulate you on your uh, uh, Scottish play. Oh, thank yes, you. Yes, it was. I I made the the statement that it was the best non-equity uh, Shakespeare. That, that I've seen. And I remember you said that. We milked that for as much as we could. <laughs> yeah, well, but it was true. And, you know, the problem, as you know, director all these years, when you're doing storefront, non-equity, young actors doing Shakespeare, so often they cannot pronounce it. They, they're just saying words. They don't even know what they're saying. And it just it just comes off terrible. It's a skill. Yeah. But you were you were very smart in bringing in one of the great teachers to direct the show. Well, yeah, Susan Hart is, you know, one of the, the leading local advocates of the, the folio system, um, uh, you know, where they, uh, the actor is encouraged to actually go back and look at the first folio, the first publication of Shakespeare's plays a few years after he died, to see where 
he well he didn't supervise the first fellow because he was dead um but the actors who had worked with him who put it together um where they capitalized words and where they used punctuation uh, on the theory that those indicate where the stresses and the phrasings that were intended by the playwright uh you know that those that those sorts of things are the key to understanding um you know the playwright's actual in, intention as to how a line ought to be read um and um and Susan Hart, like I say, is is one of the leading local people who who teaches that and practices it. And um yeah, she did a great job. Uh the uh casting was terrific. The, and she had a she lot had of her students. Cast, and it was an absolutely clearly spoken show. Yes, it was. And and it was like I said, it was one of the uh finest productions of that I I've seen and, and it's it just goes to show that it, that you know, if you attack it correctly, uh you don't have to have the top paying pros to really have a, an effective show. Yeah. Well, you know, like I said, she had, a, she had an excellent cast. We're yeah. non-equity theater, so I understand what you're saying. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, but, you don't have the budget to hire, you know, to hire the A-list uh, classically trained actors. Uh, well, you know, some of these people are classically trained, yeah. but, um, but they're, you know, in the early part of their career. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that, I understand that was a uh, big hit for you. It did very well for us, yeah. yeah. Well, tell us about the last year or so since you've you've taken over City Lit uh, in '05, and right. it just seemed to me that that from from day one uh, you just stepped everything up a notch. Oh well, that's good to hear. Um, yeah, the, uh, City Lit. Um, uh, I've always been a big fan of City Lit. I saw uh, City Lit's second show in the fall of 1980, and I've you know I've wanted to work at City Lit ever since, and now you know I get to every day, which is great. Uh, but um, you know, in the early part of uh, the first decade of the century, City Lit had sort of fallen on hard financial times, and it put a limit on even just how much the theater could produce. When uh, when I came in, uh, uh, City Lit was producing only three shows a year uh, for less than six months out of the year, which is to say that most of the time the theater was dark. Mm. Um, and Brian Pastor, our managing director, came in at the same time. He plays the lead in Body Snatchers. Yes, he did. He uh, was terrific. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's, he's, he's a really good actor. Uh, but he's our managing director here at the theater. And he and I came in at the same time in 05. And um, you know, immediately started expanding the range of shows and just the number of shows. And, um, and the variety, too. I mean, you did musicals, you, you did all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, our next show is a 1917 Jerome Kern musical called Oh Boy. Yeah, let's let's talk about that because uh, Jerome Kern, would, uh, Wooden House, uh, and Guy Bolton, this is a, a classic show, right? Yeah, it's, uh, it's one of the princess musicals, um, which students of musical theater history, uh, you know, will know what that is. Um, but they were... Uh, the first American musicals, and of course it's an American art form, uh, to try to sort of integrate the book uh, with the songs, you know, with the, with the music and the lyrics. Um, Jerome Kern, of course, the composer, um, was a big advocate of this, and he's the composer ten years later of um, Showboat. Oh, so this was before Showboat, but this, it... This is a full decade before Showboat. And Showboat it, is pointed to as you know, the first uh, serious musical to really sort of accomplish that, where all the songs really further the plot mm-hmm. and have something to do, you know, with what's going on and not just a song that's stuck in. Um, oh, boy, and the Princess Musicals in general, from 10 years earlier, Kern was already working on this idea 
with P.G. Woodhouse and Guy Bolton. I wasn't uh, sure. I mean, these are all major names. Oh, that's yeah. So uh, now it's it's historically um, something definitely worth seeing. Yes, uh, they're also more intimate than the typical musical at the time. You know, this was the age of um, uh, Ziegfeld Follies, and you know that sort of like big huge spectacle. Show. Yeah, yeah. But they, these were all written for the Princess Theater, uh, which at the time was a Broadway theater that was much smaller. Uh, you know, sat like I think 300 people, and so just economically and aesthetically, it became important to scale things down. Um, and so it's, it's just a much more um, producible show these days uh, because of that, and also because of the attention to making the songs, you know, move the play along and not be a break from the play, which wow. was yeah. the custom at the time. Yeah, boy meets girl, and they then they get mad, and then they get back together, and in between there's all these songs. Yeah, that's what that was such a classic format for many years. Right. Wow, so this is great because, you know, we need this. We, we all, and I'm sure you as a theater person, we're so tired of the same people doing the same shows over and over again. Yeah. That we need, particularly in musicals, we need people to find some of these great scripts and then bring them to life. Yeah, we spent um, uh, about a year and a half uh, tracking it down, and uh, it didn't exist. It was never published. It didn't exist in any one place. So we have sort of like cobbled it together from a half dozen or more sources. Oh. Um, you know, you're directing. Uh, yeah, I'm directing it. Yeah, um, you know, this piece of sheet music from you know that university library, and the script from you know uh, this other source, and you know, it was, it was, it's really been. Uh, uh, a detective story to track it all down. Well, maybe um, you should get it published then. <laughs> well, you know, we don't own the rights to the script, so that wouldn't be up to us. Yeah. But it's it's the first Chicago production of um, of Oh Boy since the original Broadway cast toured to the Loop in 1918, a year after it was on Broadway. Wow. Wow. And uh, uh, how many musicians do you plan on having in? Oh, two. Two. Okay. A uh, a um, piano player. And then a reed player who will actually play three different instruments in the course of the thing. So it's four instruments, but only two musicians. Oh, so, and on your stage, it should work well because what, what I, one of the things I like about your stage uh, is that it's intimate enough. It's big enough to where you can put on a nice show, but it's still intimate enough where you don't need to mic your actors. And as right. long as they project, they can be heard all the way through. Exactly. The yeah, yeah, the back of it, we seat 100, oh, actually 99. Um, and uh, the back row of the theater, the you know the 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 furthest seat you could possibly have is only twenty two feet from the stage, so it's it's very intimate. Yeah. Wow. Well, congratulations on that. We got to make sure that we uh, we really uh, you know we get everybody out to see that show because uh, the historical significance. And you guys are starting to develop a reputation of uh, of doing some decent musicals. You... Well, thanks. Yeah, you know, we are uh, taking small steps, or up till now we've taken small steps toward, you know, putting musicals in here. Um, and Oh Boy is sort of a big step because it's, you know, it's a, it's a big show. Yeah, you did the, what was it, Wind in the Willow? or uh... yeah, yeah, Wind in the Willows last year uh, around Christmas time, which we're bringing back this year okay. in between Christmas and New Year's. Uh, and it's a, it's a musical. It's, it's Doug Post's. Uh, musical adaptation. He did the the adaptation of the book, plus wrote the score and some additional lyrics. Wow! Yeah, uh, on the non-equity level, uh, uh, and on the small you know storefronts, we we need more musicals. So great, that's great. So tell us about your upcoming season. 
Well, we have four. We've just announced, and we have four shows in the subscription season, and then two shows. One of which is the remount of Wind in the Willows, as um, a sort of special shows outside the subscription season. Uh, but the four shows in the um, in the subscription package are uh, the uh, revival of Lovers by Brian Friel. God, that's one of the Brian Friels I have not seen. I love his work. It's a beautiful play. Yeah. It's one of his early plays. Okay. And uh, these days, it's sort of, um, uh, you know, at the time, it was acclaimed as, you know, this sort of beautiful, wonderful, great play, which it is. But since then, he wrote translations and Dancing in mm-hmm. Lunatha, which are just, of course, you know, toweringly magnificent. And so Lovers has kind of gotten overlooked. But it's, it's, it's you know, it's absolutely one of his great plays. Um, and it's two separate love stories. Uh, the first act is entitled Winners, and the second act is entitled Losers. And both acts are very funny and very moving. Uh, and I don't want to tell you too much about the plot, because... No, no, know, right. Uh, well, we can't wait for that. But that's in the fall. Okay. And, and then what? Um, then um, the next thing in the subscription package is Volpone, the Ben Johnson play. It's, I, I'm calling it the greatest non-Shakespeare comedy of the English Renaissance. Whoa, um, that's quite a claim. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't think I'm unique in considering it that way. Okay, it's um, well known. I don't, I, I, I'm sorry to say I'm not so up on some of those old-time classic stuff as I sure. should be. Um, well, Volpone is the story of this miser who is uh, cheating his friends and acquaintances by pretending to be at death's door. Um, and through his servant Mosca, um, he is convincing a handful of people that he that Volpone is going to make that person uh, his only heir, and that person will inherit his whole fortune. And so, to continue to suck up to Volpone, they keep bringing him expensive gifts. And of course, he's not the least bit sick. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, he ends up faking his death in order to cheat people. And uh, the tables turn, and much hilarity ensues. Great pick. Yeah. And then, uh, and then the next one, uh, the Copperhead. Uh, the Copperhead. We're starting a series in next year of um, an ongoing five-year, one play per season series of um, plays having to do, in one way or another, with the Civil War. Mm. The year 2011 through 2015 are the sesquicentennial years of the Civil War. And it's, it just seemed like a, a sort of project that a theater like City Lit uh, was in a position to do, and therefore ought to do, which is to, you know, through those years, examine the war. You know, it's the, the legacy that it's left to us. Uh, you know, it's, um, uh, it's sort of the American Iliad. Oh, yeah, and, that's uh, for you sure. And so much of the mythology of the country and the understanding of who we are as a people sort of comes out of the Civil War. And so every year, uh, the show that we have running in April, because, of course, the war ran from April to April, um, the show that we have running in April every year will, have, will be something about the war. Okay. And The Copperhead, speaking of old plays, uh, is from 1918, um, and it's by um, Augustus Thomas, a name I had not heard before, before I found this play. But it's the play that made Lionel Barrymore a star on okay. stage. And uh, Copperhead, of course, is a northerner who has southern sympathies. And um, it's, it's about this man in central Illinois uh, who has professes southern sympathies and refuses to 
have anything to do with the, with the Union war effort. The first half of the play is set during the war in 1861 and 1863. And his son, who's 16, wants to go enlist in the Union Army and, you know, uh, uh, is going to unless the father enlists in the Union Army. If the father enlists, then the son will figure he needs to stay on the farm because they can't leave the farm alone for mom to deal with. Um, so there's pressure on the father to enlist, thereby keeping his son out of the army. But he says, no, no, I'm not going to raise a finger against the Southerners. I, I see their point. I think, you know, we should let them go in peace. So the son enlists, uh, is killed at Vicksburg. Everybody basically hates the father because they see the father not only as unloyal to the country, but as responsible for his son's death. Ooh. Powerful. You can get some powerful drama out yeah. of that. The second yeah. half of the play is 40 years later, like 1901, 1902. And um, he's lived with uh, the sort of censure of his community for 40 years. Meanwhile, all the characters we met in the first half who were enlisting in the army and being, you know, commissioned as captains or whatever, they're now old men and, you know, grand figures in the community, partly because of their service during the war. And he remains sort of an outcast. Wow. And, you know, there's, it turns out there's a dark secret, uh, which again, I'm not going to talk about. Okay. Wow. But it's a really terrific play, and nobody knows it. Um, season. All three of these uh, so far for your season coming up. Wow. You guys are really moving up to another level. Well, thanks. Then you're doing uh, another Arthur Condon Doyle. Yes. Uh, the Sign of the Four, our world premiere adaptation of the, the, the Sherlock Holmes novel. It's our third Sherlock Holmes show, and you're uh, you did you adapted this too, besides directing, huh? Uh, yes, yeah, I've done all all of the Holmes adaptations. I love Sherlock Holmes, okay. um, and um, Don Bender, who played Holmes for both uh, our other shows, which was Holmes and Watson, mm -hmm. which was two short stories, the um, uh, um, A Scandal in Bohemia and the Final Problem, um, and then uh, a couple years ago, I guess now it's been. We did The Hound of the Baskervilles. Yeah, that was, and Bender's a terrific actor. He's a terrific actor, and he's perfect for oh, Sherlock yeah. Holmes. Sure is. And so he's coming back to do it. And, um, you know, we didn't even really plan at any point, oh, let's do a series of Sherlock Holmes stories. Uh, but um, I just love the story so much, and Don is such a great Holmes. Yeah, and they come, and they're, they work, yeah, they work so good on stage. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you, you have a good feel for those. Wow, you've got quite a season coming up. We think it's a great season. And then, then like I say, there's two shows that are outside. Yeah. The, that's what we've just talked about is the subscription season. But, but well, well, how much is your subscription? Uh, 80 bucks. Wow. So it works out to 20 bucks a show. 20 bucks a show to see four tremendous shows. Yeah. Um, and, and we're also remounting uh, Wind in the Willows from last year. Okay. Um, as a holiday show, uh, uh, from Christmas to, you know, just past New Year's. And um, also sort of in the same vein, tied to a holiday, we're doing a short run, a two- or three-week run, leading up to Halloween of um, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, the Ichabod Crane and Headless oh, Horseman. Story. Yeah, that's, the, that's terrific. And it's good timing for that. It should be. And, it, and we're hoping it'll be a, a good family show that's, like, you know, nice and scary. There's one actor, Brian Pastor again, uh, playing all the roles, and an on-stage musician, and an on-stage Foley artist doing live sound effects. Well, I'm glad you told me that, because he's on my radar for one of these interviews, too. I guess I'll have to wait for that, because I love doing people when they've done a one-person you know, uh, a one -person show, because to me, that separates the, the actors from the professionals. 
Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. It seems like it would be, I mean, not an actor but at all, but it seems like that would be much harder than just being you know, one of a, an ensemble in a show, which is plenty hard anyway. Right. Well, let's go into some of your background. One of the things I do want to bring up is uh, you're, you're a professor of, uh, of you teach uh, directing, right, at, at Columbia? Yeah, I teach um, uh, uh, directing and uh, a class called text analysis, which is basically how to read a play at uh, Columbia College. Okay. And you're also the author uh, of a book. You've got to tell us about this, Misdirecting the Play. Let me read this for a second. Uh, it has been denounced at length by the American Theater Magazine from the podium and the national conventions of the uh, literary managers and dramaturgs of America. But it's used in colleges from coast to coast, and it's now in paperback. Now, I have not had the pleasure of reading that yet. I, I certainly would like to, but you've got to tell me about this. Okay, sure. sure. Uh, it's a book I wrote about 10 years ago. It's been out 10 years now. Uh, or not, I guess that's not quite true, but it's, it's coming up on ten years, um, and um, uh, it's um, it's a critique of uh, the idea of the director of a stage play as the auteur of the show. Um, my point is that um, uh, the only the only really creative artist, the only one you can really apply that term to in the theater, the only person who creates something out of nothing is the playwright. And the, the director and the actors and the designers are all interpretive artists. And it's our job to realize that other person's vision. Um, and um, uh, that um, the idea that a play is a found object for a director to you know, pick up and reshape as he or she sees fit is, I think, a bad idea. I agree. I um, agree. And so that's sort of the thrust of the book. Uh, toward the, some, you know, in the second half of the book, um, there's a chapter which, uh, unbeknownst to me, or, un, you know, uh, uh, I did not realize in advance, would be the big controversial thing about the book. Uh, but it's a chapter about why... Uh, conscientious directors should not work with a dramaturg. Tell us about that, because uh, I've heard people indirectly, a lot of them agree with you, but they sort of are a little hesitant to say it. Yeah. But um, you had guts enough to say it. Well, yeah, yeah. Um, the idea of a dramaturg, which is, I think, is a little inside baseball. I think most theater goers probably don't even necessarily know. Right, what that's one of the reasons I want does. you to talk about, because you're the guy. Okay. Um, the idea behind a production dramaturg, because there are dramaturgs who don't necessarily work in the rehearsal room on the show, uh, th that, you know, do lobby displays or organize post-show discussions and all that. And I'm not talking about that. I think all that's great. Uh, but a production dramaturg uh, actually is part of the creative team that puts together the show. And uh, they do research into the... Uh, background of the play and the background of the characters and maybe the background of the playwright and, you know, all of that sort of thing. And we'll bring, like, prepare packages for each individual actor about what they need to know about their character. And we'll work with the director and the designers to sort of, you know, shape the vision of the play. And my point is that that's the director's job. And that um, the drift toward directors wanting to be, you know, the big visual auteur, the person who reshapes the, the play, um, 
has taken them away from their real task, which is to understand the play in a deep and meaningful way and then to communicate that in a clear way to the actors and designers. And because directors have, are, you know, have stopped doing that to the degree that they ought to do that, somebody else has been brought in to do that, which is the dramaturg. Um, and it's, it, much of what the dramaturg does, the production dramaturg does in the course of rehearsals or, or pre-rehearsal preparation, um, is the director's homework. And it um, make it puts a distance between the director and the play. Could you, could also be a source of conflict too, couldn't it? Well, it could be. Yeah. Um, uh, presumably, the dramaturg knows they're working for the director. Presumably. Presumably. Okay. Um, but you know, there's a lot of really talented dramaturgs, and my point is not really a criticism of dramaturgs. Uh, I think it's it's like the designated hitter in the American League. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, nothing against Frank Thomas or any of the, you know, really excellent designated hitters, but the designator hitter rule is a bad idea and should be done away with uh, because it creates an unnecessary member of the team. Okay. Um, you know, mm-hmm. uh, baseball in the National League doesn't have a designated hitter. Pitchers have to actually... Uh, go up to bat. And, and I, I, to add a parallel, to my knowledge, I rarely run into a dramaturg in a musical. Oh, well. Think about it. I mean, yeah, that, I hadn't thought about that, but okay. I have yet to see one. And, and in preparation for this, I tried looking to find one, you know, for like Marriott or right. Drury Lane, you know, and I've yet to find one. Well, commercial theaters do not employ dramaturgs okay. because they're in business to try to make money. And so they do not see the point of hiring somebody who didn't write the play, isn't directing the play, isn't acting in the play, isn't designing the play, isn't stage managing the play, isn't working on it as a crew member. They say, why would we pay that person? Yeah. Um, well, that's a very not practical for profit theaters. Yeah. The, 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 the dramaturg is a creation of the not-for-profit theater movement. Okay. Um, and it's because, well, it's got roots in Europe that go back hundreds of years. And I don't know all that history. But in the United States, um, the, the dramaturgs come to uh, view really starting in the 80s, maybe late 70s. Okay. But, um, you know, as the not-for-profit theater movement established itself. And here's part of the reason. Um, as as not-for-profit theaters grew uh, and their staffs grew, most of the growth in staff was administrative. Okay. You know, suddenly there was a subscription department, and there was a publicity department. And the artistic staff was still pretty small. There's an artistic director, maybe there were resident designers, um, uh, but, you know, that wasn't part of the growth of the organization. And that makes a certain amount of sense. You understand why uh, a theater that used to have a smaller number of customers and is now has a larger number of customers, why they need a larger administrative staff. Yeah. Um, but funders said, well, you know, we're giving you more and more money and because we like to fund the art, but your artistic staff isn't growing. Oh, okay. And so, so in response to that, the not-for-profit theater movement, uh, the, the theaters went out and hired dramaturgs because then they can say, we've added to our artistic staff. Oh, okay. Now that's, you know, that probably makes sense. That's very, yeah, that's very it's the tail wagging the dog. Okay. And, and what a great defense you, you give uh, for directors because I, I tend to agree with you. I, and I've talked to dramaturgs, and I uh, 
I still don't understand. Yeah. They don't understand what they're trying to do. I think you explained it better than some of them have yeah. to me. Well, my point is really a criticism of directors. It's not really a criticism of dramaturgs. A lot of them are really talented, and I think they ought to start directing. Um, it's a criticism of lazy, lazy directors, directors. Okay. who want to hand off part of their job to somebody else. Good. And it's like, you know, at what point do you stop being the director? Mm-hmm. If you're not in charge of understanding the play and communicating it, if that's been farmed out, then why are you the director? You know, it's like hiring someone to come in and block it for you. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Wow. Well, in the interest of time, I have one last question okay. for you. Okay. What do you perceive for the future of City Lit and your future? What would you like to do that you haven't done yet? Oh, you mean as far as shows and stuff? Yeah, shows. Oh, and, gee, yeah. I don't know. Um, uh, I always say that City Lit repertoire, you know, the, 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 the range of shows we do, um, ought to be as varied as the reading habits of, you know, the, the, the average adult good reader. Um, and, of course, that person's reading tastes continue to expand. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's sort of what we hope to keep doing. Okay. Um, every season we try to do at least one show in there that's a departure from what we've done in the Expanding. past. Expanding. And what about you personally? Is there a show that you haven't directed that you're just dying to do? Um, nothing that comes to me off the top of my head. Okay. Um, I mean, that's part of the beauty of, you know, being an artistic director of the theater is that if, when you've got a show like that in mind, well, you can go ahead and schedule it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. Well, Terry, thanks a lot. Keep up the good work because City Lit is a Chicago treasure, and you guys are continually, you know, uh, up in the ante each, each show. Well, thanks. And, and uh, folks, uh, get out to see the Body Snatchers and get on City Lit's list. Go to their website and get information on Oh Boy that's just coming up in uh, late May. I think it's May 21st. May 21st what, is the yeah. first preview, and it runs into late June, June 27, I believe it closes. Yeah, this but sounds... don't wait for Oh Boy. Come see the Body Snatchers. Yeah, oh, yeah. The Body Snatchers is absolutely worth seeing. It's a, it's, a, it's a great show. Well, thanks, Terry. Thank you.